Abbas Kalimov used to have a pretty spectacular job. I used to work as uh, Vladimir Putin's speechwriter. Putin was prime minister at the time, and Abbas worked for him on and off from 2000 to 2010. What kind of boss was he? Look, I understand it's hard to believe it now. But actually, he always seemed to be preoccupied with finding the most uh, reasonable solutions uh, to the problems. Did he change your speeches all the time, or did he compliment you when you wrote his speeches? Uh, he was quite complimental. Look, uh, don't get me wrong, I was never the top speechwriter. So uh, I was never communicating with him directly. I visited uh, many meetings he held, maybe even hundreds of them. He was always very patient. He was never disrespectful uh, towards others. Um, he, he seemed like a good corporate manager. He said Putin knew that people would tell him what he wanted to hear. They didn't want to limit the discussion that way. And he was very cautious not to press onto people whom he wanted to listen to. So he was, uh, let me use the word uh, gentle, even the word gentle is okay. Like, you know, after the war started, I was thinking a lot why it happened, how it happened that like that kind of person tur turned into this kind of person. How did that kind of person turn into this kind of person? Quite a few of Putin's enemies have perished by... They discovered this nerve agent in my blood. Putin have a developing new program of this chemical weapon. People say the same thing about Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group. An ex-con, restaurateur, and favorite of Putin, who ended up staging a short-lived mutiny against Russia's military leadership and die in a fiery plane crash two months later. But it didn't seem to start this way. Did you ever cross paths with Eugenie Prigozhin? When I was working in the government, he opened the restaurant there in the Moscow White House. It was a very good restaurant, I can say. We were visiting it with pleasure. Was he charming? Look, when he was uh, serving people, he was very charming. He was going around, smiling, and uh, asking people if they like everything and so on. But from chef to paramilitary leader? Nobody could expect it. was such amazing transformations. Look, uh, the way he transformed uh, during this year, it was, uh, it was shocking. Uh, he turned out uh, to be such a beast. Nobody could expect this, uh, even Putin. He turned out to be such a beast, he says. No one would have expected this, even Putin. But of course, Prigozhin went even further, starting to challenge, if not Putin himself, the way he was running things. And that led to his demise. Which means Prigozhin's paramilitary media empire is up for grabs. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. We tell true stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. And today, Wagner after the death of its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Military intelligence agencies, private military companies, and, and even emissaries sent from the Kremlin are all vying for control of his operation. And the only thing that's certain 
is that Wagner will emerge transformed. Stay with us. Chat GPT, AI machines, satellite, engine ignition, click here, and liftoff. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. This May 20th video of Prigozhin is now the stuff of legend. Today, at 12 noon, he says, Bakhmud was completely taken. Prigozhin is in battle fatigues pulled tight against his belly. He's holding a Russian flag against a howling wind. And there are armed fighters standing behind him, holding Wagner banners. Blood, honor, homeland courage, they read. Just a little over a month later, Prigozhin would launch an armed mutiny. There's been a dramatic escalation in tensions between Russia's military and the Wagner mercenary. What he called a march for justice. Yevgeny Prigozhin claims his troops have crossed the border back into Russia from Ukraine. Armed Wagner mercenaries entered Rostov-on-Don, home to one of Russia's largest military hubs, and a command center for his forces in Ukraine. And they parked their armored personnel carriers right outside military headquarters. And Wagner forces, Prigozhin said, were going to head for Moscow. Breaking news overseas. Tonight, security around Moscow is being tightened. And then, just as suddenly, Wagner's leader called it off. Uh, You know, it's like in the horror movie when you are afraid and at the same time you are like, you are enjoying it. This is Abbas Galiomov again, the former Putin speechwriter. He was in Israel by the time all this was unfolding. So the feeling was like this, like on the one hand, Prigozhin is not a good guy. He is criminal. He is absolutely ruthless, uh, unscrupulous, unprincipled, uh, mean person. But on the other hand, he was literally doing it what nobody else could do. He was shaking the system. Why did he stop? Because he didn't plan any coup. He's part of the system. He wanted to make the system more efficient, not to change the system, like substitute it with something else. Maybe put more of his fighters on the ground instead of Russian military forces. Maybe just to show military leaders who had been denying his men ammunition that Prigozhin wasn't to be trifled with. Abbas said it was never about ousting Putin, because without Putin, Prigozhin wouldn't survive. He'd end up in prison. The only thing he wanted, he wanted for them to hear him. His message was simple. Hey, guys, if we go on like this, we will lose the war. We will lose the country. We'll end up in prison. And uh, step by step, uh, it, it happened. 
Prigozhin began showing his frustration with the Russian Ministry of Defense by posting crazy videos on Telegram. And then he named names. It's you, Defense Minister Sergei Shaigu. And you, Valery Gerasimov, who was head of the Russian Armed Forces. He even pulled his troops out of Bakhmud at one point. So maybe it was inevitable that he wouldn't know when to stop. This is a march for justice, he called his armed rebellion, and we're going all the way to Moscow. Prigozhin was not the enemy of the system. He was part and parcel of the system. This crisis would never have happened if Putin had been working properly. After knowing Prigozhin for decades, Putin thought he could handle him until he discovered that he couldn't. Obviously, he took Putin by surprise. I think he took himself by surprise. He, he didn't expect this from himself, probably. The fact that Prigozhin wasn't immediately arrested, pushed out a window, or just disappeared surprised just about everyone. Instead, Prigozhin was effectively exiled to Belarus, where he and members of the Wagner Group established a camp. Uh, it was a formerly a, a Belarusian military camp north of Ukraine by about maybe 200 kilometers. This is Brian Liston, a senior threat intelligence analyst at Recorded Future's INSET Group. Full disclosure, Click here is part of Recorded Future News, an editorially independent part of the company. Brian says that though Prigozhin had technically been exiled, he continued to move around as if nothing had happened. Traveling to and from Moscow, St. Petersburg, and still maintaining his presence, despite the fact that he was effectively exiled from, from Russian territory. It, it almost was as if it, it actually wasn't an exile um, just because of his, his whereabouts and how he still had his presence despite the fact. Prigozhin, we know now, was also spending a lot of time in Africa. Wagner had been operating there since 2017, helping counterinsurgencies, propping up strongmen. And they were in all the hotspots, Mali, the Central African Republic, Sudan. And in some cases, they would trade security services for mining rights or set up shell companies that would contract out to other shell companies that Wagner controlled. A couple of years ago, they even started a brewery to compete with a local French beer. Il n'y a pas de football. 133 export. 33 export. Supporter numéro one du football. Do you think he actually thought he was going to get to keep the Africa part of his operation? For the large part, this was fairly business as usual. He believed that he would still continue to operate as is in Africa with not only Wagner Group but uh, his mining companies or some of his investment firms that he had stood up um, to procure things like mineral rights, despite everything that happened with the March for Justice. And this isn't speculation. Shortly after the mutiny, Prigozhin released a video from the camp in Belarus. That's him welcoming his fighters to their new camp. And he announced that, for now, they weren't going to be fighting in Ukraine. But instead, they would need to prepare for a new journey in Africa. Prigozhin even went on a kind of whistle-stop tour, first to Burkina Faso in Western Africa, 
who had just booted out French troops in February, and then to Libya to meet the head of armed forces in Tripoli. And it was there, in Libya, that Prigozhin decided to make a kind of proof-of-life video. Everything is fine, he kept saying. People keep talking about my liquidation, but I'm fine. But behind the scenes, this other thing was happening. Just as Prigozhin would leave one African country, senior Kremlin officials would arrive in his wake, all smiles, bearing gifts, posing for photo ops with various African leaders. Brian Liston said it was obviously a sign. So the way that this looked from our perspective is, in many ways now in retrospect, that they were preparing uh, to try to fill that gap of Wagner at some point in the future with maybe more of a formal Russian presence. Lou Osborne works with the All Eyes on Wagner Project. It's a volunteer operation that tracks Wagner activities all over the world. They use open-source intelligence to track the group's human rights abuses and information operations. And they'd been watching Prigozhin's comings and goings after that fateful march. I mean, he was spotted a number of times in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Um, he could still uh, enjoy his mansion and wealth. And I think that situation could have given him uh, quite a lot of confidence, maybe overconfidence, to believe that uh, he could uh, kind of get pardoned by Vladimir Putin. But it appears the Kremlin had a very calculated reason for putting Prigozhin on such a long leash. Um, I think the rationale for the Kremlin behind it was the fact that Prigozhin has been instrumental for a decade for the Kremlin, specifically on their operation in Africa, and that the Kremlin needed time to kind of put together a plan on how they would manage the African operations, which are critical for Russia. She says the Kremlin was probably just buying time. Brian Liston agrees. He says it's clear that the Kremlin was looking for some breathing space to figure out how it would manage Wagner's operations in Africa. He'd been left largely to his own devices to build operations there. And clearly, the Kremlin now saw that as a mistake. They understood that if Wagner were to suddenly disappear... Russia would lose a lot of its influence in the area because of its dependence on that organization. It would lose a lot of resources, financing... Um, and relationships that they have tried to build with these fragile governments uh, in places like Burkina Faso, Sudan, Mali, Central African Republic. It's not subtle. Yeah. I think from that point of things, I think it was trying to establish a rapport and a relationship with some of these African leaders, absorbing or taking on... Wagner's influence or making that transition perhaps as less painful as possible. We're following breaking news out of Russia. According to Russian state media, a private plane has crashed, killing all 10 people on board. Prigozhin has been listed among passengers on board a plane that crashed. Aircraft crash do crash, but generally speaking, um, they don't crash like this. There's a video of his private plane spiraling to Earth. It's missing a wing, and there's a trail of black smoke. With Wagner's leader dead, his empire was now up for grabs. When we come back, divvying up the spoils of Prigozhin's infamous paramilitary operation. 
Stay with us. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Click Here. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. Faulkner isn't set up like a traditional private military company. It isn't just one giant entity. It's lots and lots of smaller ones. The Wagner Group might receive a contract through one of their companies, and one of their companies might subcontract one of their shell corporations in order to actually, um, you know, act on whatever they might have been asked to do, to take over a country with a coup, to supply arms to an armed group, to supply um, ammunition to a presidential guard, so on and so forth. That's Denise Spremont-Vasquez. I am an analyst here on the Conflict-Affected States team at Center for Advanced Defense Studies. She says that means they really function as a corporate network, a personal network, and also a mercenary group. Think of Wagner as one of those Russian nesting dolls. You know, the ones you twist open and there's a doll inside, and inside that, another doll. Except, instead of dolls, it's companies many of which have only a tangential relationship to military work. Take one Wagner company. Mirui Gold uh, Limited is a company which is incorporated in Sudan. Its parent company is M-Invest, which was owned by Prigozhin. And then Mirui Gold created another shell company in Sudan, Solage. So you have this shell company where each company actually sits under itself. This may sound like a complicated way to manage a private military company, But Denise says there are benefits to running it this way. For one, it's a great way to avoid sanctions. And so as soon as you get a sanction slapped on, if you create a new company with a different name and a different shareholder, you are able to, you know, obfuscate the kind of first round of due diligence. It also gave Wagner more control over the supply chain. Military groups, after all, need more than just guns and ammo. They need helicopter parts, police batons, uh, riot shields, these sorts of things which most mercenary groups would have to buy and transit themselves. But Wagner just bought them from another part of the company. So no waiting for supplies before you deploy. Some other arm of the company had a vested interest in making sure you got what you needed. Wagner used to quickly respond to situations, to quickly create an effective and efficient response to... Which burnished its reputation, helped land them more contracts, and allowed them to pay their fighters handsomely which all worked to Burgosian's advantage, too. Because of the reach and success of that network he built, he appeared to be a guy who could get any job done. And a cult of personality began to develop around him. Uh, it also has kind of this interesting, really unique military aspect to it that Prigozhin is able to inculcate or was able to inculcate through his personas. He created the sense that if you were part of Wagner, you responded to a higher calling. You were part of a kind of brotherhood, which, if you know your mercenary military history, should sound a little familiar. So he has really kind of given Wagner a French Foreign Legion-esque from the 20s um, 
pull. The French Foreign Legion was the legendary last stop military brigade. It was full of disgraced officers, French criminals, desperate foreigners, and crazy adventurers. It actually still exists today. But Russian criminals seem to prefer Wagner. So you not only get the excellent benefits of Wagner, you not only get the preferred deployments of Wagner, you also get the women and the booze and all of the other things that the French Foreign Legion was so famous for in the 20s and the 30s. All of which explains why trying to strip Wagner for parts isn't going to be easy. Eric Toller is a researcher at Bellingcat, and he says there's no one who can just step in for Purgosian. He was great at managing all these things and keeping all these plates spinning. and He was the thing holding it all together, so it's kind of tough to keep those plates spinning and they're going to, who knows what, they're, what the debris is going to look like. Given Wagner's messy corporate structure, its cult of personality, and its complicated relationship with Russia's Ministry of Defense, a lot of analysts think that in the end, putting Wagner into another existing private military company may be the cleanest solution. And the most likely company is one that got its start protecting Russian commercial operations from terrorist attacks. It's called PMC Redoute. Redoute, which has been around forever. I mean, it's mostly just kind of did like private stuff for oligarchs and security and things like that. But it was kind of chosen to be the new mercenary company to possibly replace Wagner and some of his contracts and, it, and its responsibilities. Redoute and Wagner have a history. They've been recruiting from Wagner for well over a year, and there was kind of this this now infamous confrontation between Prigozhin, um, you know, the late, dearly departed Prigozhin, and and some people from Redoute. Redoute poached one of Prigozhin's top lieutenants a few years ago. Wagner actually called it a defection. So there's no love loss between the two PMCs. They've been kind of going after Wagner for a while now. Um, after it became clear that Prigozhin kind of had is kind of a you know his own kind of mad dog working on his own, and he got put down right obviously. But they've been doing this for a while. But now the the, the recruiting pitch is a lot easier to make than it was you know a year or two ago. It appears the Kremlin has learned its lesson and wants to have a tighter rein on whoever runs Wagner next. Remember all those Africa trips Russian military officials made after Prigozhin's mutiny? There was one unexpected person that kept showing up, the head of the Russian intelligence service, General Andre Averyov. You know, he's a little mustachioed guy. Um, he, <laughs> uh, he's been serving for quite a while, and he, um, he's also... And he's been serving as a leader of a special unit of the GRU, Russia's foreign military intelligence agency. The squad is known as Unit 29155, and you're probably familiar with their work. Salisbury poisonings. It was March 2018 when deadly nerve agent was deployed. There have been several huge explosions at an ammunition depot deep in a Czech forest. Police transported suspects to Montenegro's high court to stand trial for allegedly attempting to overthrow the country's pro-Western government Unit 29155's leader, Averyov, is also thought, not so coincidentally, to have been behind that fiery plane crash that took out Prigozhin in Wagner's top leadership in August. And now, ironically, it's his name that's being floated to help Redoute strip the Wagner group for parts. Which, in hindsight, Eric says, 
goes a long way toward explaining something unusual that started to happen more recently. He's also now becoming a little more in the public in the public sphere. A Varianoff is popping up in photo ops and meetings. He was never, ever, ever a public personality because, again, he's a spy chief, basically, right? And it wasn't just as part of that Africa swing. He was at this public forum for um, African, uh, much African leaders were visiting recently, and he was a part of that and introduced and talked a little bit. And now we know why, right? Because Nigeria is kind of taking hold of Redoute. They're kind of like, like, okay, this is this is ours now. So he's kind of the one taking, be the point person for this. And now we know why he was involved in these African forums, because his role in kind of um, replacing the Wagner activities and Wagner footprint in Africa with replacing with this GRU-led operation. So this spy chief, who essentially runs an elite unit of assassins, may now be stepping out of the shadows and into the light. And if that does happen, as Kremlin speechwriter Galiamov said earlier about Putin and Prigozhin, it would be quite a transformation. This is Click Here. Here are some of the top cyber and intelligence headlines of the past week. A China-linked hacker group has managed to crack into more than two dozen multinational organizations since last year with a very old-school approach. They tricked people into plugging malware-infected USB drives into their organization's networks. The cybersecurity firm Mandiant revealed at the MY Security Conference last week that many of the infections appeared to originate from the Africa-based operations of multinationals in countries like Egypt, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, and Madagascar. The malware was a variant of an old malware strain known as Sogu, and it seems to have traveled via USB stick from shared computers in internet cafes, and then began infecting computers worldwide. The Department of Homeland Security has floated some new ways to simplify reporting instructions for cybersecurity attacks, and they've floated the idea of a single reporting web portal. Right now, there are 52 cyber incident reporting requirements that are either proposed or in effect. As part of the cyber incident reporting bill that was signed into law last March, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, was asked to examine and streamline its regulations. And finally, the British government has quietly sacked an independent AI advisory board that was supposed to hold government agencies to account for the way they used AI and algorithms in their work. 10 Downing Street has says it wants the UK to be a world leader in AI governance, and it's hosting a global AI safety summit in November at Bletchley Park. The technologies are currently deployed in Britain to predict, among other things, welfare fraud and to analyze sexual crime convictions. I'm Dina Templerest. I'm the executive producer and host of the show. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director. Will Jarvis is our producer, and Lucas Riley and Jade Abdul-Malik are our staff writers. Our editing team is led by Karen Duffin and Lou Wolkowski. Darren Ancrum does our fact-checking, and our theme and original music compositions are by Ben Levingston. We also use music from Blue Dot Sessions. And as always, we'd love to hear from you please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts or send us an email at clickhere at recordedfuture.com. 
Check out our website with details about our shows and our whole show catalog at clickhereshow.com. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and we'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.